So, Michael, we will be going live in five. So all the way from the United States of America, can you please give a warm welcome to Michael Matt. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for that kind uh, introduction. I don't, I can't see you, so I, I, if I'm addressing sisters and priests, uh, good morning to you, first of all. It's an honor for me to address the Family Life International Catholic Conference again. The last time I was with you, I was with you in person, which of course is much more natural, and I, I miss you. I wish I could be there today with you in the room, but it is truly an honor to be here. Warm greetings also to my friend Greg Clovis and to the entire Clovis family, an amazing family, which do so much great work in defense of, the, of life and the family. So thank you. Thank you once again. Most sincerely, thank you for having me with you today. So I've been asked to speak to you about a fairly thorny topic how to live the Christocentric family life in a Christophobic world, the world which gets increasingly more Christophobic with the passing of each day, especially now in my country, my poor, sad country, but also in yours, which isn't much better. Maybe it's worse. I don't know. But why is this a thorny topic? <clears throat> I think it's because a discussion of family means a discussion of raising children, and nobody wants to be told how to raise their children, including me. So it's always difficult. People get very defensive. So I thought what I would do to try to make this, this next half, half an hour, 30 minutes together most effective, but what I would do is I want to I ask you to pretend now that I'm not actually speaking to you this morning, to this audience, that you are sort of a third-party observer to a conversation between me, a rusty, rad, trad, bomb-throwing Catholic Yankee from the United States of America, and a young English couple who just got married. Let's call them Nigel and Alice. Let's pretend they live in Kent, Bromley. Let's pretend they're sitting right here in the front row. I'm talking to them. So we can just observe this conversation and take, it, take, take from it what's useful and what's helpful in a very challenging time now to raise children, to raise that family, Christocentric family. So just before I zoomed in this morning, our Nigel and Alice asked me a very simple question. They said, Mr. Matt, we are expecting our first child in June. How did you and your wife raise your seven children in the faith in this Christophobic world in which we find ourselves? Now, I'm not a child psychologist. I'm not a priest. I'm not an expert on family raising. But what I am is a Catholic father of seven children. My oldest now is 26 years old. Incredibly, I can't believe it. My baby is 12 years old. Now, the older children in my family now are fully educated uh, with majors and minors and degrees from good, solid, conservative universities. I might get to that today. I think it's very important if we we're going to reclaim society for Christ the King to have our young people educated in fields that they're, apt to, that, they're, they're, that they're good at, that they're called to, so that we can help take back every aspect of this society for Christ the King. But my point is I have adult children now. And all of my seven children, thanks be to God, are Latin mass Catholics. We're very united. So how did we make it through? Nigel and Alice wanted to know. How did we do that? First of all, I want to be very clear. Because sometimes when people start talking about raising children, it comes off as arrogance. It comes off as cocky, as sanctimonious, as lecturing. And that is not me. 
So I don't want to, I want to make a, a couple things very clear right at the outset. First of all, my wife and I are still at it. We have a 12-year-old son. We have an expression here in the States, I don't know if you have it in England, never count your chickens before they're hatched. So life is a struggle. Uh, and the devil never rests, as we all know. So my family, my wife and I, our children, we're still running this race. But I do think now that I have enough success, <clears throat> thanks be to God, to comment to a young couple like Nigel and Alice on what has worked so far for my family. Because let's face it, we are running out of time. There is a war against the Catholic family. And we need to share our resources, share our experiences now, which is why I appreciate the opportunity to speak about this today for your conference. But again, I want to be very clear. I'm no hero, and my wife can tell you that I'm no saint. But I was blessed with an opportunity. I was blessed by being born into a family <clears throat> some 57 years ago whose parents were much older and who had a very sort of European background themselves, the way they were raised. So my father, for example, was the son of German immigrants. He was born in 1915, long time ago. Uh, much older in life was he called to marriage. So he fought in World War II, didn't get married until he was 30 or 38 years old. So by the time I came along, he was 51, which meant that I, I had a link, sort of a conduit to the way things had been, to the old Catholic world before everything went insane. I mean, obviously there have been problems for a long time, but especially at that point, he can still remember he experienced a more sane and a more Christocentric family life himself. And it had a, a Catholic European foundation from his parents. So my father actually remembered how things used to be, in other words. And he could give that to his children. So my childhood, consequently, was rooted in old Catholic German tradition from my father's side. And then from my mother's side, in old Catholic Irish tradition. And that's a huge benefit that very few people now anymore have access to. I set that up as my resume for how, how it is that I think I can speak to this issue with some authority because of the gifts and the, and the graces that I experienced in my life being raised by who I was raised by. So consequently, because of this natural link, because sometimes nowadays people began, young people began raising children, they find the Latin Mass, they find homeschooling, and they have to sort of reimagine or recreate the link from themselves to a better time, to a saner time, and they have to sort of use their imagination. That's not the case with me. There is a direct link with people. Some, I'm sure some of you have the same story to tell. So consequently for me, growing up in the United States of America, mine was not a quintessentially American childhood. You see, I grew up you know, in a thoroughly Catholic home in which, for example, there was no television. No television growing up. There was no rock and roll music. There was no public school education. Not even diocesan Catholic schools, which by the mid-70s, as I was growing up, had already gone and begun to fall seriously, to falter, no longer be Catholic. So my parents had to start their own small traditional Catholic schools. So these are the, these are the things I want to point back to, to see if we can recreate some of it now as we, in 2023, young couples begin to try to raise, uh, raise their children in a Christophobic world. We also, another point, we never went to the new mass. We either went to the traditional Latin mass or we went to the Ukrainian rite, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. So we weren't exposed to the Novus Ordo liturgical revolution either. And consequently, when my father and my mother died, they left behind, I think, 155 grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all practicing Catholics. How is that possible? 
It's possible because of the faith, because of the grace of God, and because of family, true, authentic, Catholic family life. And I'm going to get into that in, in a moment. How did, that, how did we do it? My parents stayed true to the old Catholic family model, a model which is the Christian family, a model which is based, which was of the family founded by God himself, modeled on the Blessed Trinity. We had rosary then every night. And I remember in my childhood, this again is an example of how things have changed and how we had great benefits back in those days. And I grew up in one of those neighborhoods in Midwest United States where everybody was Catholic. The whole parish was Catholic. So we would be outside in the summer playing hard for hours and hours and hours. And about seven o'clock at night, everybody's door would open up and everybody's mom would appear at the doorway and say, Jimmy, Teddy, Billy, Annie, Susie, get in here. Time for the rosary. And everybody went in the house to pray the rosary. It was as natural as breathing, in other words. There was nothing particularly virtuous about it. It's just what Catholic communities did in those days. So being Catholic then defined us, even as children, from a very early age. So I remember, for example, just wanting to be a, an adult Catholic. It seems funny to talk about it now, but that's, this is the way it was in those days. I remember when I was six years old, for example, and I begged my mother if I could go with her to Tenebrae on Holy Thursday and Good Friday in, in, in Holy Week. <clears throat> and my mother said, you're too young. Well, I begged and begged and begged and finally to, to shut me up, I guess. She agreed to let me go with her. And you know what? To this day, I have memories of sitting in the church in the darkness of Tenebrae with my mother on the cold, hard pew that was very difficult to sit on, especially for a little kid, for three hours and being so incredibly proud of myself to be sitting with my mom at Tenebrae doing what adult Catholics did. You see? You see how they were able to make Catholic be something that was awesome and that even little kids wanted to do it. I was growing up Catholic and I wanted to be just like my mother and just like my father. Again, not virtue, not virtue. It was a natural thing to be like your Catholic parents in that time. And then there were the rites of passage that were thoroughly Catholic, <laughs> like going to Tenebrae. And then I was even confirmed, had the great grace of being confirmed by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre when I was 10 years old because my father refused to go along with the revolution in the church. And I want to tap into some of this to try to give our Nigel and Alice an example of what we can shoot for in the past that worked so well. How do we, how do we re sort of recoup that? How do we use those, those beautiful lessons from the past for a young couple starting out today? How do we export those memories and bring them into reality? Well, in the interest of saving time here, friends, I realize your conference is already going a, a little bit long, and I don't want to delay it anymore. You know, I want to offer a bullet point list of what worked for my wife and me. Now, this is not a list of the only answers. It's just a list of the answers that worked for us and that I hope might help people like Nigel and Alice as they start off in their life together. First one, number one in the bullet point, number one. We, my wife and I, we never underestimated the evil we face. It's essential that we understand we are up against raw evil, principalities and power, powers. So we knew that our little Catholic family actually presented a threat to the powers of hell so active in the world today. And so we fortified ourselves as best, as we, best we could accordingly. We knew that they wanted to kill our little babies in the womb. 
even. That's how serious, how sick, and how evil the enemy is. And whichever ones of our children made it past the abortuary somehow, we knew that they wanted to kill the souls of our children. And so we anticipated them. And I think it's very important to anticipate them today. In my case, we actually moved out to the country and raised our children far from the city, you know, where we could, we could do, what a, do what needed to be done to raise a Christocentric family. Turns out, I think we were right to have done so. You'll all remember Cardinal Carlo Cafara in a 2017 interview explaining how Sister Lucia, famously of Fatima, had written to him, to his eminence, back in 1983. And Sister Lucia had said to him in her handwritten letter, she said, Father, a time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be over marriage and the family. That was prophetic. That's exactly what we see happening today. That's exactly what's going on over in the Vatican right now with the synod on synodality. But God is in charge. God will intervene. God will save his church. His church is for him to save. The family is for him to save. We need to cooperate. We do not need to get discouraged, but we need to open our eyes, Nigel and Alice. God will give you what you need to survive, just as he gave my wife and I what we needed to survive. But don't underestimate the evil that stands against you. You literally are the front line in a battle against Satan himself. So says Sister Lucia of Fatima. Number two, my wife and I looked at our home then in the country as our castle. You know, we had to fortify the castle. We had to treat it like a Catholic fortress. So we have crucifixes and images of the Madonna and child all over our house. Our children literally grew up with saints on the walls. Pretty much every wall in the house. Our children breathed Catholic since before they could remember. They imbibed Catholic with their mother's milk. It's all they ever knew. It's as natural to them as breathing. And I would see things, I would find things that I had not taught my children. One time we moved my son out of his room and he slept in a bunk bed. And as we moved the bunk bed into the next room, I happened to look up on the ceiling and I see a, a little holy card of the Curie of Ars, St. John Vianney, taped to the ceiling. So when he laid in his bed at night, he could read the prayer and think about St. John Vianney. I didn't teach him to do that. That's what he wanted to do growing up in a Catholic home. So people say, yeah, but you're, you're sheltering them. You're sheltering these children. What are you going to do? You're sheltering. <laughs> Here's the thing, friends. You will have time to teach your children to live in the real world when they get older. But just as the hermit living in his cave knows more about the real world than anyone else on the planet, so too the Catholic home will be the real world, the real world training ground for future soldiers of Jesus Christ. It will come in good time. Don't worry about sheltering children when they're little. Take care of them. Make them happy. Give them a beautiful castle in which to live. So when they go into the world, for example, when they go to college, they're prepared for it. They are soldiers of Jesus Christ, ready to keep the faith no matter what happens. Number three, we set up an altar. This is a practical suggestion. My wife and I, based again on what my father and mother had done, we set up an altar in our home, right in the living room. 
Even before our first baby arrived, we had already built the altar. Very simple little altar. Crucifix, little statue of Our Lady of Fatima, little statue of St. Joseph, and my wife put a vigilite out in front. And as my father had taught us, you know, that children thrive on drama and rituals, the family rosary, once our children came, the family rosary became a dramatic nightly ritual. We turned off the lights. It's dark in the house. We light the little vigilite in front of the statues. The flickering flames and shadows animate the statues. We kneel on the ground. Nigel, lead your children in prayer on your knees in the dark. Alice, hold the littlest one on your lap. And when the time comes, coax those beads through her fingers. Teach her to pray the beads lovingly. See? Our sons and daughters, I think, friends, will always remember us, their parents, on our knees, in the candlelight, talking to God, talking to his mother. There's nothing phony baloney about it. It is real. It is reality. So we never made the rosary a burden, by the way. You know, I remember some distant cousins would, when I was a kid, distant, distant cousins would occasionally show up from out of town, and they were visiting. And that, this was when, when, when my, when, it happened when I was a child. And my mother would not insist that all the children stop playing and come into the house on that occasion, that rare occasion, to start praying. And I think it was because she knew that that would begin to make the rosary into a burden on this, on this occasion. So she would let us playing. And then later in the evening, she would say night prayers with us together, and all was well. You see the difference? The church is holy mother church, not prison warden church. So teach your children Teach them to love, to pray, as a family. And then you tell them the stories. Don't ever forget this, friends. Tell them the great stories. Tell them the stories of Don John of Austria, Lepanto. Tell them the stories of the Cristeros. Tell them the stories of the Vandeans. Heroic families just like theirs, just like ours, who in the past prayed the rosary with their children every night and changed the course of human history. This is part of the adventure. It is not a burden. Now, number four, there is no place, there was no place, and there still is no place in our castle for the television, the satanic tabernacle, the conduit to a rotting world, right? There is no place in our children's lives for the iPhone either. Hear me on this one, please, friends. You know, I, I had, when my, my wife and I were raising our children and iPhones came in, we had no intention of placing the largest red light district in human history in the pockets of our little sons. <laughs> Why? Because this is insane. And I see homeschool kids all the time now, Latin mass kids, 12-year-old kids. Why do they have an iPhone? Why are we doing this to these boys especially? We're going to lose if we don't take steps like this. That castle, our castle, is a sacred place for family life. Do not let the demons in. Instead of iPhones, we taught our children how to read, how to write, how to play music, how to tell stories, how to sing, <laughs> how to love the real world, as opposed to the artificial reality that is so fraught with danger now. And we've never looked back. Number five, movies. People talk about movies. You think, you know, you, they're evil. You can never watch movies. I disagree. We watched movies growing up. 
My children watch movies still, but the old movies. This is where you're going to cringe and you're going to probably be tempted to make fun of me. But this, this worked for us. We went for the black and whites. We went for the old ones. No movies. Hollywood's been a problem for a long time. But you can find old ones that were innocent, that told good stories, that taught good history, true history. And we did it for family movie nights. We did it together. We didn't have our children watch, watch movies and then we watched different movies as parents, as adults. We did it together as a family. So as a family, we watched Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as Holmes and Watson. <laughs> or Treasure Island or Kidnapped or Captain Blood. We watched John Wayne movies. We watched Errol Flynn movies. We watched Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. <laughs> a lot. And we watched them together with our kids. And it worked out just fine. My son was, was, was born in, whatever, 2002. He was a big fan of John Wayne. He was a big fan of the Lone Ranger. It worked beautifully. It was fine, friends. And I know some of you are cringing right now. Ah, oh, gee, really? Gotta go watch John Wayne and the Lone Ranger? That's crazy. But you gotta do it. Because the alternative is destroying children. What's going on now culturally in movies and TV and television is absolutely destroying any chance you might have of raising a Christocentric family today. Our, chil our children simply cannot be asked to ingest poisonous paganism and soft pornography to be entertained by it and then to remain Catholic somehow. It's not going to happen. Besides, it's so much fun to just go back and be different and do it as a family. Kids don't notice until they're 16, 17, 18 years old. Then they look back and laugh at the fact that while everybody else was watching Miley Cyrus, they were watching The Lone Ranger. You know, they didn't even notice at the time because we did it as a family. Number six, friends. Friends for the kids. Believe it or not, they're not essential. They're beautiful and they're wonderful and one hopes to find good friends, companions for our children, but it's not always possible. You know, our children were blessed with cousins, but, but my wife and I were simply not interested in farming out our children to be raised by cousins or by friends or by other families, you see? So over the years, I've seen so many good families again, homeschool their kids, attend Latin masses, but then expose their children on a regular basis to friends who are lost from families who are, which are broken and are firmly connected to the pop culture, and those families lose their kids as soon as they come of age. So it's sad, and it's tragic, and it's heartbreaking to draw this particular line in the sand when it comes to friends, you know, and to maybe go it alone without so many friends for the kids. But as parents, this, we, we, we understand this is a temporary period, this is a formation period, this is their education period, and we sometimes have to take extreme steps to make sure we, 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 we solidify the faith in our children as we prepare to send them into the world. And there are precedents. Did you know that St. Therese of Lisieux, that her mother, Zelie Martin, wouldn't even let her daughters play with their own cousins because she was so concerned about the influences on her project to raise a Christocentric family? So there are precedents, something we need to talk about. Number seven, music is essential for children. You should fill your, your I believe, we filled our, our home with music. But not all music. So rock and roll music, rap music, uh, pop music, contemporary pop, had no place in our Catholic home. You know, my father once gave an entire talk when I was a little kid. He gave an entire talk on the evils of Elvis Presley and his music. Doesn't that sound funny compared to what's going on now? But was he wrong? Look what happened to pop music. Look where it is today. 
Just because we don't see the evil anymore as our fathers did does not mean that the evil wasn't there. <laughs> so imagine what somebody at my father's age would think of what's going on today, the degenerate entertainers in your country and in my country, entertaining little kids with straight-up pornography now, godless, heartless, Christ Christophobic pornography, and calling it musical entertainment. Got to remember, the revolution came into our, at least nominal Christian society, inside the belly of the rock and roll Trojan horse. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Ministers, Protestant ministers, rabbis, Catholic priests rebelled against that music when it first came in. We simply have gotten used to it in our day. And now nobody wants to talk about it. I get it. But the culture war was real then, and the culture war is real now. And the culture war had a massive influence on what happened to the Catholic Church as well. You've got to keep that in mind. So the way my wife and I saw it, if we wanted to raise Christian children, then we couldn't possibly let them be entertained by the poor <laughs> folks who hate everything in which we believe. Now this might be the most difficult step in raising kids today because nobody likes to have to say no to this, no to the movies, no to the friends, no to the music too. It's not fun. I get it. But it's so important for parents to, to, to develop the backbone and to do it, to just stand up and say no. We're not letting that into our home. Modern music in the headphones of our kids is the private, 24-7, anti-catechism lesson that leads them to a rotting, Christophobic, cultural corpse that our kids don't want you and us as parents to know anything about. It's a direct conduit to that. And it's going to be a powerful negative influence on their life. And if you think just taking them to Latin Mass once a Sunday is going to compensate for 24-7 listening to that music and being indoctrinated by those people, you're fooling yourself. But music is important. My wife and I played Bach. We played Beethoven. We played Mozart. We played, played Palestrina. Good music. Every good music that we could find. Folk music in the house every day when my children were babies. We taught them to play violins, flutes, pianos, guitars, exposing them to a constant diet of ordered music so that later in life they would not be victimized by the disordered music that we see all around us today. And guess what? It worked. It worked. Now, number eight, we brought back the holy days. This is essential because if you're going to say no to music and no to movies and no to all of this stuff, you have to give something even more wonderful to your children, especially when they're young. So you bring back the holy days in a very special way. That's another thing I learned from my father and mother was that kids need to fall in love with the faith. And the easiest way to make that happen is to give them all the great feasts of Christendom again. Bring them back. I'm talking about really Catholic celebrations of Christmas and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and All Saints Day and St. Nicholas Day and the Ember Days and everything. Bring it all back. Bring the Catholic culture back, all of them, all the feasts. So we gave our children Advent and Lent, one of the greatest gifts we could have given them. Real Advent, real Lent. We made it difficult for them. They had to give things up. Children thrive on that because it builds excitement and it builds anticipation for the coming feasts which Mother Church gives us. The happy, joyful feasts that our mother gives for us every year, all year long. You can't have those feasts if you don't take fasting seriously. You can't have Christmas without Advent. You can't have Easter without Lent. And we do these things as a family and then make the feasting truly epic, as Mother Church has always done. 
And then we, took, we, we found, we sought out the cultural alternatives, the feast alternatives, the ways of celebrating, the alternative ways of celebrating these feasts. We didn't do Santa Claus at Christmas, for example. My parents had kept the German tradition of Christkind, which means baby Jesus. It was all about baby Jesus who came and brought trees and gifts to us as children on Christmas Eve. It's all about baby Jesus. In Italy, they call it Jesu Bambino. You can find the baby Jesus tradition all over Europe, in every country in Europe. You just got to go get it. And it, it brought with it certain beautiful customs. For example, the Advent straw box. When Advent begins, you put a box on the altar in your living room. You go out and you cut straw with your children. And every time the child does a good deed, a charitable deed, a good thing, they put one piece of straw in the basket in order to make a bed for the baby Jesus. You see, a little child lives for that straw, putting the straw in the basket, getting ready to welcome the baby Jesus. Beautiful Catholic customs that made everything come alive, for children especially. We dug them all up, all those beautiful customs again, and we celebrate them with all the Catholic joy that we can possibly afford. Pull out all the stops when the feast comes. You know, we went out and got the biggest, tallest, most magnificent Christmas tree we could possibly find every year. Christmas meant family. It meant baby Jesus. And it meant midnight mass. And belief in baby Jesus and belief in the real presence is so interconnected as they grow up. You know what, why we did this? Because now as an adult, as a, as, a, as a guy who's getting old, as long as I live, I will never forget my father. At the time, he was the greatest thing I had ever known, the greatest man in the world. And I'll never forget the image of my father kneeling in front of the crib on Christmas Eve's in the dark in the candlelight, talking to a baby lying in a manger, talking to that baby's mother. They were so real to him, the baby and the mother, that belief in Christ in the Eucharist came easy, was effortless for our children. Our father believed <laughs> they were real. And that, friends, was the whole point and purpose of the great feasts of Christendom, to make Christ come alive in the real world, in the lives of children, in the communities, in the family. And we got to bring that back. We must make our homes fertile ground for the old Catholic culture. It's all there. It's just waiting for us to bring it back. I'm running a little short on time, so I want to say we have two more points quickly. Number nine is homeschooling. It was never easy. My wife did not want to do it when we, first got, when we first started out, but we did it and soon discovered that there is no better way to keep the family united to each other and to God than the home school. Not everybody can do it, but if you're able to do it, you must give it serious thought. You know, with the help of tutors, with online services that are now available, we educated all seven children at home from the cradle to the college campus, and we never looked back. With our older children, we even put them into public school sports sometimes, tennis, baseball, when they were ready, when they were mature enough and ready. And we went to every single practice, every single game. We taught them how to deal with the poor children who are not as fortunate as they are. Now, it's not easy, I get it, but somewhere along the line, homeschooling became the most beautiful thing that ever happened to our family. We never had teenage rebellion at all. And to this day, my best friends, Nigel and Alice, my best friends in the world are my adult children who are now preparing to homeschool their own children. You see? And now we come to number 10, final point. If I had to, I could give you 100 more, but we're running out of time. If you want to raise a Christocentric family in a Christophobic world, love your children. 
understand what they're up against, understand what they're hearing every day about LGBT and about pedophile priests and about all the evil yuck going on in the world. Love them to Jesus and Mary. Keep them close. Make their life fun. <laughs> right after I was married, I tried to stay connected to my friends and to the things I had done as a single man. It doesn't work. You have to raise your babies as your full-time job. You see, every moment must be dedicated to making the lives of children, our children, so happy and so wonderful and so fun that they want to give their children what we gave them, a beautiful Catholic childhood, a Christocentric home. We have to love our children enough to do as St. Paul instructs us all to do in 2 Corinthians 6:17. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. St. Paul is referring to Isaiah 52.11, that Christians are called out of the world, to come out of the world, and to be separate, to be sanctified, to be set apart. We did that, and it became the adventure of our lives. It was fun. I loved every minute of it. Still do. They are children. They need to laugh. They need to play. Being Catholic is not drudgery. We have been given the honor to help reclaim the happiest culture in the history of the world. The joy of Christianity literally built the most sublime civilization in history. It is responsible for the love story that built the Shark Cathedral, that built all the great cathedrals of Europe, the love story. And as parents, we have a chance to help rebuild that, help rebuild Christendom with our babies. And this is the greatest privilege of our lives. And because being Catholic so defines us and so completes us, it can never be a burden for our children. It must be a great, big, magnificent adventure that they will never forget. Commit to that adventure, and you'll spend the rest of your lives praying, playing, and laughing with your children. We drive 50 minutes every Sunday to attend Latin Mass, but that commitment to the Mass of our fathers is not a burden for our children. It's part of our family's adventure. We fight for our liturgical birthright as a family, just as we pray every night in front of the flickering flame together as a family, just as we kneel before Christmas crushes in the darkness of so many Christmas Eves together as a family, just as we baptized our babies, educated our children, and buried our parents together as a family, living, crying, laughing, loving, praying, breathing, and dying as a Christian family. So the only question is, and I'll close with this, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this enough to be different than almost everyone else in your Christophobic neighborhood? It's not easy, and I don't mean to pretend that it is. But I will say this, as I near the end of raising my own children, I realized that there could never have been anything more rewarding in life than raising the Christocentric family in a Christophobic world. And all of this has happened before. We tell the stories of those who did this before us, in the past, in history. We tell the stories of the martyrs of the Western uprising in your country, the stories of the Vandeans in France, the Carlists in Spain, the Cristeros in Mexico. Well, if we do this right, someday they'll be telling our story too. The story of the faithful Catholics who never gave up on Christ, even in a world that was at war with him. I said at the top of my talk today that I'd come back to Sister Lucia of Fatima, who told Cardinal Kafara that the devil's final battle will be over marriage and the family. But Sister Lucia went on to say in that same letter, she said, but do not be afraid, because Our Lady has already crushed his head. 
So don't be afraid, Nigel and Alice. It is possible, and it certainly is worth it. It will be the greatest adventure of your life. It is the good faith. It is the race that we must win. So God bless you. Keep the faith. And may Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the Holy Family, be with you every step of the way. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless your conference.